1: Hey there and welcome to the feed feed podcast i'm alexa santos the feed feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community serving as your daily source for what to cook bake eat and drink here on the podcast we are speaking with members of the hashtag feed feed community to hear their stories learn about their culinary inspirations and get some of their best cooking tips today i'm so excited to be joined by ken oranger ken is the james beard award winning chef and restaurateur behind many popular boston restaurants ken is also now a cookbook author with the book, Cooking with My Dad, The Chef. That's a gluten-free cookbook complete with lots of homemade pasta recipes that he wrote with his teenage daughter who was diagnosed with celiac disease in 2020. Thank you so much for being here, Ken.
3: Thank you so much. So uh, so excited to share our latest um, cookbook adventures with you guys.
1: Amazing. So obviously you have a lot of restaurants on your plate and a cookbook and a family, but before all of that, Can you tell me a little bit about your culinary beginnings and where you grew up and what some of your early food memories were?
3: Okay. All right. So I am from the culinary mecca of Paramus, New Jersey, uh, which is just outside of the George Washington Bridge. Um, So I was lucky enough as a kid to be exposed to lots of great food in Little Italy and Chinatown and street festivals, uh, eating spit-roasted baby lamb at like Greek um, uh, street festivals during the summer, and just always had a love for food um, from Julia Child shows and Jacques Pepin shows, and knew at the age of about eight that I wanted to be a chef.
1: And so you went to culinary school, I assume, correct?
3: Uh, Yes, I went to business school first. um, Pretty much pushed in that direction as much as I wanted to go to culinary school. My parents felt it was smarter to go to business school first and I went kicking and screaming. (laughs) Uh, Probably the best decision I ever made in my life was going to business school. So, um, and then went to cooking school after business school.
1: Okay. And so then what, where did your journey take you from there?
3: Man, it's been a long, <laughs> long crazy journey, but uh, yeah. I, when I was in culinary school, I started working um, with David Burke at the River Cafe, which uh, this was in the late 80s, and it was a really amazing place, probably one of the most creative restaurants in the country at that time, and I had an amazing uh, growing experience, pretty much Everything was uh, available to us in terms of ingredients. So as a young cook, it was everything from live sea urchins and black truffles and seafood from Japan and all this stuff that I'd amazing ingredients I'd never even seen before. So it was like being a kid in a candy store, just um, trying all these things. And it, it kind of spawned my creativity for really great ingredients and uh, kind of exotic uh, types of food. And then after that, I ended up um, working at a really great restaurant um, in Rhode Island in Providence called Al Forno, which was kind of like the Chez Panisse of the East Coast in those days. Everything was from local farms. Everything was cooked in wood ovens and on wood fires. And it was a really uh, incredible place to work at, again, at a young age. And then I went up to Boston. uh, After that, jean George actually had a restaurant in Boston way back in the day. And this was in the late 80s. And it was called Le Marquis de Lafayette. And... I cooked over there and became sous chef over there in a kitchen that was everyone was French except for me. So (laughs) I was able to learn how to uh, navigate a French kitchen, uh, not speaking French, which I learned pretty quickly. And uh, again, just started getting exposed to like Asian, French type food, which uh, was my wheelhouse. And then after that, I ended up moving out to San Francisco because of the Asian French, kind of Asian California um, type of food that was happening a lot out in San Francisco. And it's access to, it's Chinatown and Japantown and all those type of neighborhoods. And was the chef at a restaurant called Silks at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel and was there for about five years. And then I kind of got the itch to open up my own restaurant and came um, back to Boston and um, opened up a restaurant called Clio, which was a contemporary French restaurant that I had for about 20 years. And then that kind of allowed me the opportunity to travel and do lots of events around the world. Um, I was doing lots of events in Asia and in um, Spain, so I fell in love with those cuisines. Decided to open up an Asian um, kind of funky contemporary sushi bar in the lower part of Clio called Uni, and then I opened up Toro, which was a Spanish is a Spanish tapas uh, restaurant, and then I opened up Copa, which is an Italian wood fired. Pizza, homemade pasta restaurant in Boston. And then years later, opened up, um, went on some journeys. We opened up a Toro in New York pre, uh, that we had for about seven years on, uh, in the meatpacking and closed that during the pandemic. And also um, opened up Little Donkey in Boston and now just opened a restaurant about a year ago called Facha Facha as well in Boston.
1: Wow. So how many restaurants is it total?
3: So right now, it is six restaurants.
1: Oh, right. So you are kept very busy, I would imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. How, what is that like? I mean, a lot of restaurateurs. I mean, you talk to many who even just opening one is, you know, pretty much their life's work. So how do you manage that, you know, family, everything with six restaurants?
3: Um, It's it would be impossible if I didn't have such amazing, um, talented people uh, working with me. So they make it all happen. And luckily, again, my younger years as a, as a chef, I was such a control freak. I wouldn't uh, allow anyone to do anything. And luckily, I learned my lesson and now allow people to do what they're supposed to be doing. And they are smarter and more talented than I am, so it makes my job a little bit easier and uh, allows me to have the flexibility to bounce around to whichever restaurant I feel that I'm needed and uh, to also be able to um, spend some time with my family while my kids still want me around, which is getting uh, harder and harder these days.
1: <laughs> and how many kids do you have?
3: I have two kids, 14 and 12.
1: Okay. Okay. So which is the one, I guess, tell me the story about the celiac diagnosis and how this turned into becoming your cookbook.
3: All right. So the celiac diagnosis happened just, it was a pretty crazy time. We couldn't figure out, our daughter was definitely not feeling well and we spent about six months seeing every kind of doctor under the sun Mm -hmm. and nobody could figure out what was wrong with her. And this was just as the pandemic was starting. And then um, she, we went to one doctor and they finally figured out that she had celiac. And for a food loving family, I mean, it was definitely like a, quite a shock, you know, because we would traveled a lot. We lived in Paris for a short time with the kids uh, about a year earlier than that. And it was pretty much my mission at that point to tell my daughter, anything that you crave and love food-wise, I'm going to figure out how to make so that you never have to miss anything. And luckily during the pandemic, it afforded me a good amount of time to basically experiment. I didn't know anything. I mean, we pretty much were. My wife ate gluten free a lot just for health reasons, but I'd never really, you know, cooked a ton of, especially, you know, again things like pasta and baking and things like that. I'd never in bread, I'd never really played around with it much. So it was almost like starting over again for me, and it was like being um, uh, an exercise in patience, mm-hmm. and it uh, was incredibly eye-opening and uh, enlightening and allowed me to really, by the gram, play around with everything under the sun uh, to figure it out. And then my wife um, came up with the idea. She's like, why don't you guys you know, write a cookbook uh, well you have this, this time to play with? And my daughter was already doing some um, videos and recipe testing for America's Test Kitchen. And reached out to them, and they thought it was a great idea. And uh, we put together uh, Cooking with My Dad the Chef.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our
2: sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
1: So for those who don't know, I guess, what it entails to create dishes that are uh, gluten-free, but also like don't make you feel like you're lacking at all. What is that process like as far as like recipe testing, trying different flours? Like, what is kind of the nitty-gritty of what it takes to turn you know, your daughter's favorite recipes into uh, something she can eat.
3: I mean, luckily enough, the kids grew up in in our restaurants and a lot of the dishes in the restaurants, which are in the cookbook were naturally gluten-free. You know, we have paellas and we had all the pasta sauces and we had an uni, it's a Japanese restaurant. So we have the sushi and the sashimis and um, a uni spoon, which is in the book and a whole bunch of others. So Basically, I'd say probably like 75% of the recipes in the book are naturally gluten-free, soap-based, pupusas. These are all things that my kids were eating even before the the diagnosis. So I think, um, and those were dishes from Little Donkey as well. So it pretty much, uh, again, a lot of the um, experiments were on things like we have mochi waffles, for instance, um, which... Every everybody loves mochi, everything. So, so we created um, again mochi waffles with salted butter, caramel, and and strawberries, for instance. And uh, I wanted to be able to make buttermilk pancakes that you couldn't tell the difference. So, created uh, something a buttermilk pancakes that's fluffy and light and delicious. You would never know it's gluten free. And again, a, a good amount of uh, desserts and baked goods and things like that. We have um, biscuits, and which again you wouldn't be able to tell are gluten free. And the pastas, you wouldn't be able to tell are gluten-free. So there are just a lot of trial and error with um, just experimenting, playing around with understanding the science behind what gluten does and and how to um, kind of navigate it and, and trick it into um, being able to be manipulated. And I think uh, a lot of it, I'm um, lucky enough, I was a pastry chef for years and years and uh, trained some amazing, some of the best pastry chefs in the world. Uh, you know, worked at Clio back in the day. You know, Alex Stupak, who just opened a new restaurant this week in the city, was my pastry chef and who went on to WD and um, uh, worked um, at Alinea and a bunch of other places. So so we spent a lot of time do, playing around with science and different starches and different, um, you know, xanthan gums and... Uh, Modified food starch and you know various different uh, you know tapioca starch and and so it's just a lot of tinkering and uh, playing around with uh, trying to get that mouthfeel, but finally figured it out and it's all all in the book.
1: Nice. And so, does your daughter have a favorite from the book?
3: Yeah, she has a lot of favorites in the book. I'm I think uh, while we're on the pastas, I mean we have uh, spinach orciette with. Uh, the bolognese from Copa one of our restaurants which she grew up eating which you know I think any 14 year old loves uh pasta bolognese and especially with the you know homemade spinach orchiette I'd say that's probably one of her favorites um mochi waffles she definitely yeah. definitely loves um there's zucchini and pickled jalapeno, uh, pupusas, which she loves. And there's even like homemade strawberry shortcake ice cream bars. That was one thing that she really missed was, those are having so good. <laughs> the, you know, the good humor, strawberry shortcake bars. So I decided to play around with that. And we came up with one with a crumble. That's exactly the same as those. And it's dipped in uh, kind of a magic shell of white chocolate, um, and then dipped into the, Uh, freeze dried strawberry crumble, which is really delicious. uh, So there's again about 75 or so recipes in the book. There's lots of fun stuff.
1: Wow. And was it I mean, what did that feel like for you to be able to kind of pour yourself and succeed in creating recipes that your daughter and other people who are dealing with gluten intolerances and allergies um, that they're able to enjoy? Was that like a nice rewarding experience for you?
3: Oh, man. So, I mean, anything that makes my daughter happy (laughs) makes me happy. So, I mean, it's just um, the most incredible feeling in the world when when this book came out and uh, and she wrote the book, too. She's a a writer. So she wrote the entire book um, start to finish. I did the recipes. She did all the writing. And so it was just so nice to see her not only a 13 year old published author, but, um, again, to be able to just write recipes to a book that she wrote, which uh, was so rewarding.
1: That is so wholesome. What a girl dad vibes. It's <laughs> very, very sweet. And what is that like for, I guess, you to have your recipes out in the world? I mean, obviously, people before were able to come and eat at your restaurants. But now anybody who can access your cookbook can make your food. Does that, is that a cool experience for you?
3: It is. It's funny. I've had offers to write cookbooks for over 25 years, yeah. and I always said I'll never write a cookbook because I refuse to write down a recipe. <laughs> I always just cook instinct, and so I, my whole life I would just kind of you know I would never make something the same way twice. I would always always tinker with it a little bit or just adjust, and and I was like, oh, I'm not gonna. And it used to drive everybody crazy at the restaurants too, but now this taught me the lesson that you need to write things down. And uh, especially if I'm not going to be in the kitchen every day and with my chefs for consistency purposes, it makes so much sense. And um, it's just so nice to literally open up this book. And I'll make recipes that I've cooked for them hundreds of times that I'll open up the book and follow the recipe because I want it to taste that same way and not uh, drive my kids crazy where they say, well, this tastes a little bit different this time, which uh, is what they've uh, experienced pretty much their whole life.
1: Yeah. And it is nice. I mean, I kind of do the same thing where it's like I know how to make something, but it is nice to kind of mindlessly just like follow a guide, honestly, because it's like, well, I know this time that I wrote it down it was perfect. And I really liked it. So why try to achieve that again by guessing when <laughs> you can follow a recipe. So there you go, you're, you're changing your ways. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's super unique for chefs I talk to, to like to cook just based on instinct. So I think that's a uh, pretty standard across the board.
3: <laughs> and, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, one thing at a time. So are you now, kind of in love with writing cookbooks. Do you think there's going to be more or do you <laughs> know, the restaurant? No
3: way. To... No way. This was no. This, this took a long time. Oh right? yeah. And you know, it took almost two years, and and I had some amazing, amazing support from uh, again from America's Test Kitchen uh, kids. Um, just these guys were with me every step of the way, and we had, every recipe was tested, literally. Dozens and dozens and dozens of times, uh, even by even by kids. And so every recipe in this book, I can guarantee, unlike some cookbooks out there, every recipe in this book will work if you follow it, you know, just uh, to the so it's a great cooking tool, not just for kids, but for we have some of our managers in the restaurants are cooking from it. So they've, they've always wanted to know, like, how do you make squid ink sauce for pasta or how do you make? A really good paella at home. How do you make miso mushroom risotto? And there's all these type of recipes that anybody that's uh, that likes to cook but's a little bit intimidated by it. This is an amazing book for for those type of people as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I mean that's that's super helpful, and it's it's very cool that someone who has as much restaurant experience as you do, you know, is putting that work out into the world for people to be able to replicate. At home, and like you said, in a way that's essentially guaranteed to turn out right if you just follow it. <laughs> um And I think that's you know I'm a big fan of America's Test Kitchen, and I think they are remarkably, impressively thorough with those those tests and like making sure you know in different. I'm sure they test it out with different you know like factors for altitude and you know things like that that you don't you don't think of. So I think oh that's yeah Everything. a very very valuable resource for home cooks. Um, I don't believe you told me earlier, like what I know you had mentioned a bit of like French cuisine and Asian cuisine. But is there I know you have many, many restaurants, but what are like the cuisines that you prepare in your restaurants?
3: Well, Toro is a Spanish restaurant, uh, tapas and paella. Uh, Uni is uh, funky Japanese. Um, Then we have. Let's see. Copa, which is wood-fired pizza and handmade pasta. We have faccia faccia, which is coastal Italian with all homemade pasta, lots of crudos, and kind of farmer's market um, driven. Uh, Little Donkey is a global uh, small plates with a huge raw bar. So everything from live sea urchins, live scallops, um, the amazing oysters from uh, just outside of Boston. Um, and then we have uh, Bar Polino, which is a natural wine bar that we have in the basement of, uh, of Facha Facha as well.
1: So you're really running the gamut with a lot of different cuisines. <laughs> yeah,
3: and then I had a contemporary French restaurant for twenty years. So
1: I feel like that's—I mean, correct me if I'm wrong—relatively unique for a restaurant tour to have so many different cuisines that there.
0: Yeah,
3: it's it's pretty unique and pretty dumb, <laughs> but um, it'd be. I wish it was cookie cutter and it would make my life and my brain a lot um, a lot less stressed. But uh, you know, I get have and have always gotten bored cooking the same things all the time. So it's mm-hmm. nice to kind of switch directions and be like, oh, you know what? I'm tired of uh, thinking Japanese. I'm going to uh, head over to Toro and move my uh, my creativity into the Spanish set and, you know, and then even Little Donkey, uh, we opened that just because it's kind of the food that a chef wants to cook without any rules and it's global and it could be caviar sandwiches as the first course and then live sea urchins as a second course. And then maybe um, something from that's just been laying around the fridge and you want to make some kind of, you um, Indian-inspired um, curry. And then for dessert, if I feel lazy, I'll just serve like chocolate chip cookie dough with the milk milk foam and cocoa nibs. So Ooh. it kind of follows the rules that there are no rules, and you just cook whatever the hell you feel like cooking, and that allowed us to open a restaurant that well, was a little donkey.
1: That's honestly kind of a nice, I guess, like you, <laughs> you said, it was dumb to have like so many different, you know, balls up in the air for, you know, those different cuisines but it is kind of cool that you have that flexibility and you are able to just kind of hop around based on what you're what you're feeling and oh, I think absolutely that's, that's a cool thing that you know very few chefs have the opportunity to do i feel like it's you get so laser focused on like especially if you're doing like tasting menus or things like that it's like right doing kind of the same thing over and over and over again so i'm sure yeah. that uh, that keeps it uh different
3: <laughs> 100
1: i guess <laughs> and so now that you're an expert on turning things gluten free, would you have any tips and tricks for people who maybe someone going through something similar where they're finding out that they need to cut out gluten? Are there like any big takeaways that you learned in recipe development that um, you would tell others?
3: Well, I think number one, they should buy the book. I yeah. think uh, <laughs> I think there's so many pointers and uh, tips in the book, but. I think just don't be intimidated. Again, when you really think about it, um, anything can be made really quite deliciously gluten-free. And just don't be, uh, d- number one, don't be afraid to, to cook. It's definitely better to, to cook yourself because it's always going to be safer, um, especially again for cross-contamination and things like that. But um yeah, I mean, just really, you would be shocked when you really think about what's served around the world that is gluten free. And again, like in Mexico and in you know, South America and in Asia, so many of these cuisines are Vietnam and, and Japan, and so many of these cuisines are based on rice and on yeah. corn and masa, and you know, uh, along that lines, like just. The amount of things that you can make with masa in in the world, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of things that you can play around with. From again, sopas, arepas, hueyes, uh, tortillas, all these type of things. And then when you go to Europe, there's in Spain they don't eat a lot of gluten naturally either. I mean, they have a little bit of bread for pan con tomate and things like that. But there's the paellas and all the Tapas and things like that. There's not not a lot of uh, bread served in a lot of these countries. And uh, even Italy is actually the um, gluten-free capital of the world, which a lot of what? people don't know. Um, they even have the the government even gives um, like grades for certain restaurants uh, that are celiac uh, trained and approved, which they have to be there. And the government also gives money to families that have um, celiac people in that to give them uh, subsidies because the food can be a bit more expensive. But there's, if you really research, Italy is loaded with gluten free options, and the grocery stores have, and the pharmacies even, have aisles that have everything that you could ever imagine.
1: Huh. I had no idea. I would have thought it was the exact opposite, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is crazy. What about France?
3: France is not quite where Italy is, um, but they, they're moving in that direction. But it's, it's nowhere close to where Italy is. London is actually very celiac-friendly as well. But uh, France, is, uh, they're still a little, little old, uh, old hat. But there's some really, really good gluten-free bakeries in Paris that, uh, that I've gone to. Uh, there's about three or four that are really, really, really good.
1: Yeah. And I mean, luckily, butter is gluten-free. So <laughs> 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 we're still able to use that, right?
3: Oh, yeah. And, and cream, sugar.
1: Yeah. I've talked to people who talk about being vegan in France, and I think that's harder than gluten-free. That's tough. Yeah. That's tough. That's tough. So, yeah, I guess if if I had to pick one... Not that I would want to, but I guess it would be easier to eat gluten-free in one of those countries than vegan. Oh, all-
3: 100%.
1: Yeah, and cheese, like, oh, so, you know, Oh, <laughs> oh was a silver lining. Well, was there anything else important to add about your culinary journey or your cookbook or anything else that I have not asked you yet, Ken?
3: No, I think um, you pretty much covered everything. I hope uh, hope it wasn't too boring. Just listening to all oh, this no. uh, garbage, but... Uh... <laughs>
1: Not at all. It's fascinating and like very, very cool and inspiring for, you know, folks, like I said, who may be going through something similar to what your daughter has been going through and, you know, wanting to feel inspired on how to, you know, tackle that, um, you know, kind of unfortunate diagnosis. But, you know, keeping a positive mindset and realizing how delicious life can still be. So I appreciate you sharing
3: that. And on that point, I guess one more last little thing. Of course. Um, The main reason that we wrote this book is to get people, to get families and to get kids in the kitchen cooking together, because that's that's the most important thing to me. And I think that's what this cookbook uh, inspires to do, is just have the kids look at this book, and you don't have to be gluten-free, you don't have to be anything to, to look at this book and to cook these recipes, but look at these Dishes that my kids who grew up in a restaurant in restaurants um, learned how to eat and and have the kids say, you know what, I want to try this and I want to cook this with you guys. And don't be don't be scared because there's recipes in here that are not there is pasta with anchovies and black truffles. There's sea urchin dishes. There's uh, definitely a lot of grown up Type uh, again the squidding sauce for the pasta. There's um, mushroom miso risotto. There's rice vermicelli with uh, chicken and coconut curry. Pad see vodka sauce with uh, homemade gnocchi. So there's all sorts of things in here that kids will love, parents will love, and you should shouldn't be. There's even a, a recipe in here on how to open oysters with uh, a really? strawberry mignonette sauce. There so. Kids should know just because parents are afraid of oysters doesn't mean that uh, kids should be afraid of oysters. So all these things I think are important lessons. And there's even a chapter in the book that's uh, that's called let me see, "My Dad the Chef" and it's recipes that uh, are a little more challenging, but um, they could be really fun for any foodie kid to uh, to cook with their parents
1: very cool that sounds all very very delicious so i'm very hungry just thinking about it it's getting close to dinner time so i am absolutely ready to roll (laughs) on eating now that we've been talking about all this stuff and yeah thank you so much for telling the story and getting us all in the mood for delicious food whether it be gluten-free or not and yeah for being here
3: thank you so much alexa
1: you bet Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook author, chef, or tour, we would love your suggestions. Just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.